All right, well, it's time the kids are dismissed for their children's lesson. Oh, they're so excited. Wow. Awesome. They'll make that way. They'll make their way. And you guys can make your ways uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. It's Romans 12, verses 3 through 16. So Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 16. I want to move over just a little bit. Oh, hi, Vera. She's smiling at me in the back. Awesome. Well, we're talking about community this morning as we keep moving on through our DNA and we talk about what it looks like to live in community with one another. Uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing as we do this, even right now, it's like uh, the, the kids walk out and we kind of feel the, the reality of, of church planting, right? The smallness of it all, but that is, I think, one of the beautiful things about the time that we get to have right now together because it can, enables us to draw really, really close together in community. And what that means is that is we really, when we say community, we mean that we have meaningful relationships, relationships that go on outside of our normal meeting times, relationships where we love and care for one another. And as we do that, we can see that the world is kind of obsessed with that idea. You can see gyms, Starbucks, coffee, uh, CrossFit is really known for it, where they kind of sell this idea of community. Come and join us and you'll get this community. But here's the thing about marketed community. Marketed community has a really hard time being authentic. For one thing, it, it gathers people around one really common goal and then other people can't be around that thing like you can either rock climb or you can't and you're either a part of that community or you're not and, and those are the kind of things that we see but in the church it's, it's a little different you have this huge variety of people that are coming together and it's messy and it's hard and the reality is is it's not always easy to make community happen you see community is a lot like secret sauce Right? It only takes a moment to type into Google secret sauce, and you will see recipes for McDonald's, Arby's, In-N-Out Burger, even Coca-Cola's secret recipe will come up. Here's what I mean by this. It doesn't take much of a culinary expert to tell you how to make somebody's secret sauce. But you know what's really hard about secret sauce? Is even when you have all the ingredients, it's really hard to replicate. There's something about the secret sauce that you make at home that really just isn't, you know, it's like I know technically that's Chick-fil-A sauce, but there's something about those little packets, man. I don't know if it's just the shelf life, the extra preservatives they put in there, but whew, Chick-fil-A secret sauce is its own thing, and it's just really, really good. So we can look up the ingredients, it's easy to see, but it's really hard to live out. And that's what I think authentic community is like. Today we're going to look at Romans 12, and I'm going to tell you the secrets. These are the secrets to authentic and meaningful community, but they're sometimes really difficult to actually live out. They can be a challenge, and it takes some work, and there's something about it, and it's kind of like the very first illustration I gave with Josiah's drawing versus Kendall uh, in the beginning. The reality is, is we have to know in the local church that the secret sauce is still yet to come that we are, are doing our best to replicate that, to look at the scriptures, to live that out, and we want to do that. But there is a truth and a reality that we cannot go into the local church thinking that everything is just going to be so great. We're building this thing from scratch, and now it's going to be just wonderful and perfect. I hope at times it's wonderful. I hope it's really great. I think it predominantly will be. But there will be times in community with one another where you will have to remind yourself the real thing is still yet to come. 
The real thing is on the other side of the return of Christ, not on this side. And that means you're going to have to forbear with one another and forgive one another. That means you're going to have to resolve to push through community, even when it gets really, really messy. So, as we jump into Romans 12, do you want to hear a secret? Here are the secrets to authentic community. Secret number one. The one another church, a church that lives out those one another's that we read yesterday in our members class, it's humble. This might be the number one secret of what it actually means to live in authentic community with people who are different than you, with people who you hear their baggage, they hear your baggage, you sin against them, they sin against you. That's what the local church really is. It's demographically different in age, socioeconomic status, talents, and abilities. The real secret is this. You have to be humble. Reading from Romans, uh, verse 3, it says this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself as more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul is saying this, and when he talks about the grace that's given to him and what that means, he's talking about his apostolic authority. If you can remember back to the book of Acts, for those of you who are familiar, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a a Jewish Pharisee who was passionate and zealous for what he thought was God, but it was actually a, a false understanding of who God was. And he was so passionate, so zealous, that he was hunting down Christians and ensuring that they would be sometimes even killed for their faith. Stoned because that they were falling away from what he believed the truth was, which was Judaism, and embracing Christ as the Messiah. And on his way one time to Damascus to do that, to fill that out, to to persecute Christians, the Lord Jesus himself appears to him in a vision and basically just knocks him right off of his donkey. He has this amazing encounter where he's blinded for three days, and in that he's told, I will make you an apostle to the Gentiles. That's his apostolic calling. My calling to be a pastor was nothing as cool as that. It happened over a long time and a long stretch, and at no point was I blinded for three days and had to have a guy come to me and heal me of my blindness. But that's what Paul's pointing to. So he's talking about, so by the grace given to me, a knock you off your donkey, blind you three days kind of grace given to me, where I've been given this special and unique tact to be an apostle to all of the Gentiles, Listen up. I have something to say to you. This is a literary red flag. It's like he's, if you can think of the guys at the airport, just like honing you in. Like, listen, listen, listen. Wake up. If this was old school preaching, I'd be pounding on the pulpit, right? Like, wake up. I'm getting ready to say something really, really important. After 11 chapters of deep, beautiful theology about the grace, goodness, and love of God, I have something to say to the church. And this is what he has to say. Do not think of yourself as more highly than you ought to. Think with a sober judgment. This huge kind of a big announcement at the end of this book, as he gets ready to shift gears and talk about life together in community for the next four chapters, is met with this. Don't think of yourself too highly. You have to think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, it's really easy, I think, as I listen to this. I know for me, as somebody who's maybe a little bit uh, legalistic in my heart, that I think, yeah, get him, Paul. 
You tell that guy, don't be too prideful. What's really happening is I need you to be saying, yeah, get me, Paul. Yeah, Holy Spirit, work it in me. Because the reality is, is way too often in this life, I think of myself as way too high. I think of myself as I'm just way better than I really am. Instead of thinking with just a sober judgment. The next phrase in this verse is, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, there's kind of two ways we can think about this, but they actually both have the same outcome, so that's okay. The first way is a, is a C, measure as if we've all been given a different measure of faith, that God has bestowed on somebody different measure of faith. And maybe he's talking about spiritual maturity. And we can all recognize that that's, there's truth to that, that we all have a different measure of maturity. Uh, Paul becomes really, really spiritual mature in like a couple weeks. Most of us don't do that. Again, most of us don't just like go from killing people to becoming an apostle in the matter of like seconds getting knocked off of a donkey blinded in this huge experience. Most of us, the process takes a little longer. Maybe his measure of faith that's been given to him is a little bit different. In which case we would just say, if that's the story, if that's the case, then we need to humbly recognize that it's God who gives that measure of faith. And so be humble. Don't think of yourself too highly. Or you think of it, and I'll be honest, I lean towards the second one a bit. It's the same measure of faith. The Greek word there is singular, metron, for measure, that we've all been given the same measure of faith. And that is a free gift given to us by God to believe in Jesus for salvation, not by merit, not by our own works. That we're all saved by grace. In which I would say is the same thing. Because you've all been saved by grace, because you've all been given that same measure of faith, none of you is ahead of the other in your right standing before God because we've all been laid low at the cross and saved by Jesus. Don't think of yourself too highly. Think of yourself with a sober judgment. That's the reasoning that I think he's giving. And either one or the other, I think it's okay to say the point is this. God is the gift giver. You sinned and messed up. God did the saving. We didn't do anything to save ourselves. God has done it. Therefore, don't think of yourself as more highly than you ought to think. Be humble. Now, the reality is, is we're all going to struggle. We're those areas that I struggle to be humble. I'll give you one example in my own life. But I want to encourage you, just one kind of your community group questions. The first one is, in what ways are you struggling to, that you think too highly of yourself? But here's mine. One of the most dangerous things in my life is that God has, by his grace, made me a leader. He's made me a leader here in this church. I was a leader in our last church. It's a part of what God has gifted me with and my ability. And it's really easy when you're a leader and you lead something to think that there's something about you that got you there. It's really easy when you're leading to think, hey, I got this figured out, or I'm the leader. Why aren't they listening to me? Like, come on, I'm the guy. But that's really not what's supposed to be happening. Leaders in the kingdom of God have to humble themselves. Leaders have to say, I'm not here because I put myself here. I'm here because, Lord, you've placed me here, that the body of Christ has called me here and recognized these things in me. I'm reading a book right now called Lead. It's by a guy named Paul Tripp. I'm a big Paul Tripp fan. And he says this about leadership in ministry. He says, there is simply no such thing as a call to ministry leadership that isn't also a call to a life of servanthood. And there's no such thing as a call to a life of servanthood that isn't also a call to suffer. 
Then speaking of the church, a couple paragraphs down, he says this, the church, it's a chosen gathering of unfinished people still grappling with the selfishness, grappling with the selfishness of deception or of sin and the seduction of temptation, living in a fallen world where there is deception and dysfunction all around. There is nothing comfortable or easy about this plan, talking about the church. The church is intended to be messy and chaotic because the mess is intended to yank us out of self-sufficiency and self-obsession and to become a people who really do love God and our neighbors. You simply won't have joy in being a part of this plan unless you find joy in living a life of self-denial and willing servanthood. I think those are incredibly wise words from an older pastor who has been doing ministry for a very long time. It's wise words for me as a leader, and it's wise words for all of us here. The reality is, is the call to be a Christian is the call to come and die to self. It is a call to put others first and ourselves second. And we have to see that it is God's intention to put us in community with other people who don't have it figured out. And when that person is really annoying you and, that, and the brokenness is really coming through, when I forget to remind you of something, when the bulletin gets messed up, when whatever that happens and your plans run awry, it is God's intent to use that messiness, to use that brokenness, to sculpt you and make you into the image of Christ. To make us into a community that actually does what our very first sermon was all about. A people who actually love God and love people. You simply will not enjoy church if you are not humble. The great apologist G.K. Chesterton is said, it's kind of hard to verify, but it gets told a lot, so it probably happened. It said that the Times wrote an article and sent it out to a bunch of great leaders. He was one of them that asked the question, what is wrong with the world? Submit what you believe is wrong with the world and we'll publish it in our paper. And Chesterton wrote back to them, dear sir, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. Massive amount of intelligence, massive amount of, of intellect that he has known for his writing and ability, and he responds basically with two words. I am what's wrong with the world. If you look at your church experience and you think everyone else is the problem, you are doomed, no matter what church you go to, to never be happy there, to never have joy there. But if you look at your church experience and say, listen, I'm a part of this mess and I'm just as messy as everybody else and I bring as just much junk to the table as everybody else and you come here as a source of hope and healing and to be a source of hope and healing to other people you'll enjoy your church experience it will be filled with a beautiful awesome amount of joy see i'm a part of the mess and so are you so don't think too highly of yourself but think of yourself with sober judgment and a right understanding that I have been saved, redeemed through Christ. I have meaningful things to offer to this community. But I also have those things because they're a gift of God's free grace. Because as long as we think of ourselves too highly, 
We'll never learn how to exercise those gifts that we've been given. We'll never learn how to be a part of that wonderful variety that the Lord has given his church, which brings us to our second point, the one another church, the church that lives out these things that we'll see at the bottom half of our passage today, exercises variety. In verse eight, or excuse me, verse four through verse eight, it says this, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, in the one who teaches in his teaching, in the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, one who does not act, who do, excuse me, and the one who acts as acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I think as we look at this, uh, we, we have to see that, that Paul is starting off with this simile. He's talking about the body of Christ and he's comparing it to a body. And we, we use that phrase a lot, the body of Christ. It's actually, we're taking it from these passages right here. That's why we call it a body. And he's saying, just like your body has many parts that all do much different functions and work together, it's still one body. And so while I have eyes and a nose and feet and arms, and those all do different things and various organs, so we as a people come together, all doing different kinds of things, bringing different things to the table, yet we are still one in one body. And then he goes on to list these different gifts. Now, I think what's really tricky about these passages that lift spiritual gifts, uh, our inclination is to like treat them almost like they're, I don't know, a superpower or like last night when some of the guys were together playing board games and in the board games, you like get these like things in the board games, these things that like help your character do stuff. And like, that's how we treat spiritual gifts like, right? So we hear the spiritual gifts kind of conversation and we're like, I gotta go find my spiritual gifts so I know how to use them the best. Right? And that was like these superpowers that come to us. And I'm going to suggest that there's three reasons why that's not what you should be doing. That's not really the primary focus of what's happening in these texts. And one is just this. There's actually multiple texts like this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, which we just read, and this one, that list out spiritual gifts. And you know what's actually really interesting about all of those lists? They're all different. The reality is, is I don't think you can say that any of them is an exhaustive list of gifting that God gives the church. I think there's just examples that Paul is using to actually teach something else. And he's doing that in this passage. And, and, and Peter doing the same thing in 1 Peter 4. They're giving these, these lists of gifts, not because we're saying these are all the spiritual gifts that God has ever given the church. They're just saying, hey, here's some common gifts that I know you guys are experiencing. So use them to help the body of Christ as one another and celebrate that there is variety and that there is difference. So that's one reason that I want to say, don't go looking and say like, what spiritual gifts and I have to fit in one of these categories? Because I would suggest that the Bible isn't actually giving you an exhaustive list of categories. There actually may be things that you're gifted in. One, a part of the 21st century church that we just have today that they don't have then, that God has given you and that you should be exercising it for the church. And so you actually might be missing out in some of uh, God's giftedness if you're just trying to fit yourself into these categories that I don't think is the author's intent. The second one is that the gifts listed, even in this passage, actually can manifest themselves in a variety of ways. That there's variety within variety. 
when he says those who serve as in serving, the word serving there is diakonai, which is actually really, really, really vague. Right? So serving can look like showing up at 7.30 this morning and packing stuff in cars. It can look like using the soundboard. It can look like going and caring for children. We see that that kind of gift is getting exercised by lots of different kinds of people in lots of different kinds of ways. And so don't go around thinking, like, I've got to find the right spiritual gift, and then I'll serve my church. Serve your church. There's a lot to do and a lot to get done. I don't think this passage is a passage to go on some kind of soul search. This passage is a passage saying, get to work. Get, get going. Don't, don't do this. There's variety even within the variety. I mean, you can see that in all the different kinds of gifts. Teaching. Like it's expressed in lots of different ways. One-on-one discipleship, teaching adults, teaching kids, preaching, exhortation, preaching, counseling, caring for people. I mean, the reality is, is this all gets manifested in different ways. And when we only look at these things, I think we start to miss out on the things that God has brought together in our body. And the last thing is this, is because each list in of itself needs to be considered within its own context. Right? So again, these are being written to churches on occasions, and maybe they're listing those things because those are things in those churches that aren't getting done or happening, and they're trying to exhort people to do those types of things, or vice versa. It, you know, The point being, each list is, is actually to a different church or group of churches, and that they're occasional in nature. And so today, when we say, so what is this all about, and what am I supposed to do with this list, I would say, look at the context. The context is that we should not be haughty or think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, and that we're all one body according to the grace that God has given to us. That here we are, we're coming together, and we're doing these things together. And all I think of this is the church is a lot like a family. You see, in my family, and I had a really great, I was really blessed to have Christian parents who loved me, and we had a healthy family. And in a healthy family, guess what? There are chores to be done. And in a healthy, godly family, everybody takes part of the chores, but each according to the grace that's been given to them, right? We don't all do the same kinds of things. We don't all do the same chores, but listen, me and my sisters all had a list of things to do. Now, me and my sisters are a lot different. I'm about five years older than my sister, so it makes me a little older, a little stronger. I'm a guy, so guess what? Tatum got to push a vacuum, which is a lot lighter, easier to move around. I had to go push the un, un, non-self-prepared mower around our yard. I get to draw on that stick. Why? I'm a little older, a little stronger, so it makes sense that I do that. We have these different things that are given to us, proportionate to us, and our dad would make the decision of who does what. And so it looks a little different. And so I would say in the church, we're all doing these things. We're all picking up and doing our chores, but it's going to look a little different. Some maybe by just strengths, teaching strengths and the ability to do that. So one person might exercise that gift here in preaching. Someone else might exercise that gift in a smaller group setting. They maybe have the same kind of gifting, but it's given in a different proportion. And, and it's up to God, according to his grace, is what it tells us, that he's given them to a different proportion. And we recognize that together as a body of Christ. The other thing that I will say, as we look at a, at a new little church plant in these gifts, is I would suggest that your gifting in our church might manifest itself differently than it did in your last church. That that can change from church to church. Because you know what's really interesting is the word that he used for gifts is plural. I would personally argue that while I believe every Christian is given at least one spiritual gift from God, I would say it's really, really rare that you're only given one spiritual gift. Most of us have multifaceted giftings. 
right? And so while I may be preaching this morning, I did show up to the storage unit and organized the stuff and had it ready for the guys to pick up this morning because we all have different gifts according to different measure. It, it, it doesn't mean just because you do one thing that you're exempt from doing the other things. And the reality is, is in chores, in the life of chores, there are some chores you enjoy and maybe some you don't quite enjoy. And then there's others that are kind of in the middle, right? For me, chores that I enjoyed was like walking my dog. I liked my dog. Me and my dog got along. I liked getting away from a house filled with sisters. It was awesome. We would go walk the dog. That was something I enjoyed doing. Cleaning toilets, didn't enjoy that quite as much. But it has to be done. That was a rotating basis thing in the Rosen Shredder house, right? It's a part of what needs to be done. We're all capable of doing it. We're going to get together and do it. And then there were things like, for me, mowing grass. Yeah, it was a non-self-propelled mower and took a little more muscle. But back in that day, I would have a CD player, and I would find this little thing that I could strap around, and I would listen to these headphones, and they would be actually attached to a wire, like we all remember that, you know? We didn't have just a watch that I could put and put in Bluetooth headphones. What an amazing blessing we have now. But I would do that, and I would push that around, and I loved to listen to music when I was a teenager. So it was like an hour that I got to listen to music uninterrupted. So it was an okay chore. There are parts of it I didn't like, parts of it I did. And what I want to say is as we come together as a body of Christ, there is a reality that you just got to jump in. Don't spend forever soul searching on what your gifting is. Like, we'll figure it out. <laughs> just jump in. I think that's actually one of the best ways to figure out where you're gifted. You jump in and you start to figure out, man, I'm not that great at this. And as time comes and the church grows, be flexible and humble. There may be a time that someone comes and they're a little better on the soundboard than the guys back there. And we will tell those guys, yeah, they're giving me a thumbs up. Like, yay! We will tell those guys, you have been demoted from soundboard duty. Run the cords. Soundboard guy that the Lord blesses with us, he's going to run the soundboard. Right? That's just the reality of what happens as churches grow. You might lead in a certain way, and then someone comes in, and after time and testing, we might recognize they're more gifted than you are in this thing. The question is, will you think of yourself too highly than you ought? Or will you say, man, that's the thing. I was leading the youth at Paramount, and I was doing that, and I enjoyed doing that. And then Drew asked you, move to Columbus. And we're out at this event, and I looked over, and Drew is talking to all these teenagers that don't even go to our church. And they're having fun, and they're looking. And I remember looking at Pastor Kevin and saying, dude, I need to be fired. Like, that's your guy. That's your guy for the youth group. I'm just doing it because no one else wants to do it. And I'm willing to do it, and I was having fun. But that's your guy. And he did that, and the youth group grew, and it started to flourish, and it got a lot better. And then I got moved into a teaching position in an adult Sunday school class that was not well attended. And by God's grace, over time, that began to flourish and grow. By lowering ourselves here, we got to plug in somewhere else and help our church grow. But you have to be willing to look and say, I'm not the guy to do this anymore. That's the guy. God's brought us somebody else. Or that's the girl that's supposed to do this now. It's not up to me. And that's okay to do that. But the reality is, the only way that we're really going to do those things and actually be willing to lay that down is if we're motivated by love. A love of Christ, which leads to the love of his church, which leads to a love of one another. See, only if we really love one another are we going to be willing to step aside when it's that time to move around and say, this person needs to be esteemed and this person maybe needs to, to move into a different position. You're only gonna be willing to do that if you have a love of God and a love of church. And look what 
Paul says here in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If we could just boil these 12 commands, depending on how you count them, we're going to go through them as 12 commands, down to one, it would be love. Let your love be genuine. That first command there, that word for genuine can also mean sincere. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. He's saying, when you say you love God, you say you love people, live like that. Live the way that God would have you live. Don't be a hypocrite. And you do that by that second command. You abhor what is evil and you hold fast to what is good. To abhor something is to hate it. That's an interesting play on words right there in the same kind of sentence. Love... Let your love be genuine and then hate something else. You exemplify love when you hate the things that are evil. They can't go together, things that are good. So what do you do? You hate the things that are evil and you cling to, hold fast to the things that are good. And as we do that, you will love with brotherly affection. I've used this kind of terminology already that we are a family or a faith family. This is where I'm pulling it out of, is these passages of scripture that use this word of brotherly affection. That word holds with it a connotation that you would only use for your siblings, for your family members, for people who are close to you, who are related to you, people that naturally you should be for and not against. And it's saying love with another with brotherly affection and then outdo one another in showing honor. Sibling rivalry is a thing. Siblings compete all of the time. But in the household of God, this is the one area we're told to compete with one another. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. If you're going to compete with each other, let this be the competition. How can I honor them? Let us outdo one another in showing honor. And as I do that, Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The word there for fervency can be thought of as enthusiasm. Show enthusiasm in your service. I said this yesterday in the new members class, but I really like this statement. It was something that we were told as kids growing up when we weren't doing things the way we were supposed to. We tell our children, obey all the way, right away, and in a cheerful way. My, my parents used to say, you, you need to obey and you do what you do with joy in your heart and a smile on your face. So when you're doing those things that you don't like to do, you're doing the things that aren't really your thing, oh, I want to challenge you. Do those things and resolve. I'm going to do them with joy in my heart and a smile on my face. I know this isn't the thing that I love to do. Kendall's the worship leader and I'm going to push him. Sometimes, man, you got to pick a song that you don't like. And no one should be able to tell from the audience. They will never know what the ones you don't like are. Because you're going to do it. Join your heart. Smile on your face. Because it's not about you. And it's not about me. 
We're going to work through these things. And we're going to do the things we don't like to do. And we'll do them with enthusiasm. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. That's really one command that's coming together. In the midst of difficulty, when your brother or sister is hurting, when you watch them go through trial and struggle, will you do those three things? Will you rejoice with them and hope? Will you remind them and instill hope in them? Listen, there is hope even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. We can hope in Jesus and we can hope in our sufferings because listen, God is gonna use this in your life. And I'm not telling you to slap a Bible verse on it. I'm not telling you to do that because you gotta do these other things too. Are you gonna be patient in tribulation? Use some wisdom, steadfast in their trial, steadfast in their difficulty? Are you the kind of person who's willing to show up and just sit and be silent? Because man, they're going through something really, really hard. And they don't need your words right now, but they need your presence. And will you be constant in prayer? I hope we're the kind of church when someone says like, hey man, will you pray for me in the back of the room? We just say, yeah, dear Lord, please be like right there on the spot. There's no reason to wait. We can pray and we can be constant in prayer. Prayer doesn't have to just be what we do to kick off the service and end it. Prayer isn't just something that we do so we transition through the time. Prayer isn't only the scheduled times that we're doing when we're really intentional about it. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Be constant in prayer. Your brother, your sister in Christ, they explain something to you that's hard in their life. Man, pray with them. Be constant in prayer. Because the reality is this. Your true God shows up when you're in trouble because he shows up because that's who you go running to. In those moments of trouble, run to Jesus. Run to him in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contributing to the needs of the saints. We can moralize this. We can spiritualize this. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about money. Are you willing to be generous to your brothers and sisters of Christ when they're in need? I believe it's our command and it's our duty to take care of the household of faith. And when we hear of people here, that's a part of when we talk about membership. That's another advantage to be a member of the church. They move up to the front of the list of the needs that the church will care for. It's a part of what it means to be a body here. And we will help in more ways than just writing checks. We'll bring them together. We'll help them learn how to deal with finances. We will help them learn how to, to do these things. I might come and ask you, will you utilize your network and the people you know? Because this guy needs a better job. This job's not cutting it for his life and his family. Will we rally together and call the people we know? Are we willing to work with people to help them get that? Contribute to those needs and seek to show hospitality. It doesn't just say show hospitality when it's convenient. If I come knocking on your door, then you are hospitable to me. You have to pursue it. It doesn't mean just looking and saying, like, ah, oh, they're going through a hard time. But I guess if they ask for help, then I'll bring that meal. Then I'll, no, 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 no. Seek it. Pursue it. How can I be hospitable to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. The commentator uh, said in this, this is talking about people outside of the church. And I thought, ha, that's what happens when professors write commentators and not pastors. Listen, I think you need to bless those who persecute you within the church and without There's going to be times where you lead something and someone's going to complain. You going to bless them? Are you going to wish God's wrath upon them? 
Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Will you be sympathetic and empathetic? Will you take joy and rejoice with the people who are rejoicing? Will you sit and weep with the people who are weeping? Sometimes that means when they share that story of rejoicing or share that story that's causing them to weep, that you don't go and share yours. Sometimes it means just sitting with them in that moment, weeping with them, sitting with them, rejoicing with them. And sometimes, and these are wisdom-based kind of things, it does mean sharing your story with theirs because it is relevant and it is helpful. And they're talking to you because they know you've dealt with something similar. We rejoice with those rejoice and weep with those reap. We live in harmony with one another. Literally, that term means having the same mind. We already said there's variety and variety within the variety. The same mind as this. Are we all focused on glorifying Jesus above everything else? And that's what will bring harmony to our church. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. Proverbs 26, 12 says this. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That is danger, danger, danger when you think you are wise by your own estimation. When you think everyone needs to be listening to me. Let the, the signals go off. That is danger. There's more hope for somebody who is a total fool than there is for somebody who thinks they're wise in their own eyes, even if they do have some wisdom. This is a huge call to humility. And as I said before, I think as we look through all that thing, all those things and that big long list, it really can come down to this. Love one another. It's said, according to Jerome, uh, he, he, was, uh, he wrote, he was a church father in the fourth century. And he tells the story of, of John, the apostle John, and he kind of gets it passed down from a couple different people. But he says this, that the blessed John the evangelist, when he lived in Ephesus until extreme old age, his disciples would barely carry him to the church because he was so old, he could barely make it there. And he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing. But little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? It's so funny, right? They're thinking, you walked with Jesus. Don't you got more? You say the same thing every time. You're getting really old. Come on, give it to us. What's the, what do we need to know about being a church, being Christian? And it says, he replied with a line worthy of John. Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. All of these commands are wrapped up in the call to love one another. If we love God and love one another, if we do these things, our church will not fail to do what God has called us to do. All of these 12 statements can really be wrapped up into this. In the words of our Lord Jesus, in John 13, 34, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In John 17, Jesus prays that we might love one another as he and the Father love one another. And he goes on to say in there that the world will know that we are his disciples 
because of our love for one another. It's a testament to who we are. You want to see our church grow? Love one another. Professor in college used to say, your churches have to be healthy. Why would God ever bless unhealthy families with more babies? Baby Christians being the new birth is what he was referring to. You want to see people come to know Jesus? Step one is we have to be a healthy family. And I am confident that if we do that, God blesses healthy families with more and more babies. So Redemption Hill Church, love one another. If we can do that, we will be all right. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you for every good gift that you give. I thank you for all the ways that you've gifted the people in here. Lord, I pray if there's anyone struggling and says, I just don't know where I fit in, Lord, that you would just remind them that you are a sovereign God. That each person who is here has been called here for a specific purpose. You don't make mistakes. They're a part of this church for a specific reason. We need every person that's a member of our church. Every member who isn't serving and and loving you and serving our church is to our detriment. Help our leadership team to know and recognize gifting, to be able to step out of the way and let people flourish and to help plug people in when they're not plugged in. God, I pray for special wisdom so that we might bring everybody around and into the fold and have them serving one another. God, I pray that this doesn't just happen institutionally, but this happens organically. Without my planning, without my leading, without anything happening, that people just naturally love one another. Lord, that's what I pray and I ask. I ask that in your sovereign goodness, in your care for us in our souls, that we might love one another and be the, the instruments in your hands Be the tools that you use to help each individual be brought up and made mature in Christ, not be being tossed to and fro, not like little children, but that we might grow up into Christ Jesus. Help us live out this pillar of community and help us be a place that loves one another. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.